If you're thinking, I should go for a run today, but it looks like it could rain, Sierra says, save on epic rain jackets. If you're also thinking, but I can't go out in these beat up old running shoes, Sierra says, save on top brand running shoes. And if you're still thinking, but I'm also busy performing brain surgery, well then we say, you really should have led with that. Sierra, let's get moving to your local store, like now, go. This is the Olive Magazine podcast, a weekly slice of food and drink chat brought to you by the team behind Olive Magazine. I'm Janine, Olive's food director and podcast host, and this is episode 207. This week, editor Laura Rowe meets with Matt Hill, co-founder of British charcuterie specialist Cobble Lane Cured. They have an in-depth chat covering everything to do with curing meat, including his career in butchery, wine do ya is the ultimate zero-waste ingredient, and some tips on making, buying, and storing salamis. So, um, hello, and welcome, Matt Hill, to the Olive Magazine podcast. Hello. Hi, Laura. <laughs> Hiya. Um, Matt is the founder of Cobble Lane Cured, an award-winning charcuterie specialist based in Islington, North London. Um, and it's a brand I first discovered as a pizza topping locally for me in Walthamstow on yard sale and Sodo pizzas. But you've been supplying restaurants all across the UK up until, I suppose, kind of March this year, right? Uh, yeah, so the, we are... Um a restaurant supplying business. We've not really ever had any retail side of our company. So um, over the last seven years, we've built up a network of probably over 100 restaurants, um, supplying them directly ourselves or via a few distributors. So yeah, Yard Sale, um, Soto Pizza. And luckily, the pizzerias, there we supply quite a few of them and they are they are still going, a lot of them, which has been... Um, been our only real core restaurant group which has actually kept going is pizzerias interesting and so what other restaurants were you supplying before because you you know it's all across the uk that the types of restaurants you were working with yeah so it's predominantly london area sort of restaurants we've been supplying but we do we do branch out so we've been supplying from right from sort of street food traders to people like um the le manoir um, okay, a big amazing. range of people to and even Franco Manca use our Brazala. So it's, it's a huge range of restaurants. Um, uh, you know, so there's not um, any particular area we've sort of focused on. We just make our product as best as we can. And um, anybody who's interested in trying it, we're more than happy to supply them. Um, <laughs> Which I have definitely benefited from. So I've been um, I've been buying the is it the survival pack that you've got online, and I've been sending that out to friends as well. So we'll talk more about Thank the products you. in a minute. Uh, because they are amazing and I want to kind of talk about some of the the, the different things that you do and, and the cuts that you use and the, the sourcing and things but let's like start right back at the beginning because I really want to know a bit about kind of your journey to get to Cobble Lane Cured so you trained as a butcher? Yeah so I actually started working in the butcher shop when I was about 13 um, it always baffles was... me how people start in butchers so young you're like you're around like massive knives when you're still a child so yeah tell me all about this so I was I grew up in a village called Launton, which is in Oxfordshire, and um, there was a, a local family-run butcher shop in the village. Not my family, um, but I, I used to, have to do a paper round, and when I finished the paper round, um, I got roped into going in there to help them with their washing and cleaning and stuff like that. So um, my older brother was working there previously to me, so that's kind of the how I got pulled in, and um, I just really enjoyed it. Even at such a young age, I was finishing school. 
and charge around and do my paper round quickly. And I go to the butcher shop and just wash up all the trays out of the counter. And um, it it was like it was a hard job, a, a lot of work to do for like when you're so young. But it was just um, the atmosphere and the the people you was around and the conversation was just. I don't, at the time, I think it was just quite grown up, and I just really enjoyed it. And um, my boss could see I was really interested in in food. And um, from a very young age, I was I I kind of thought I wanted to be a chef and I wanted to work in food. I knew that I wanted to work in food, I, and I just assumed that must mean I had to be a chef. Um, so then working in the butcher shop kind of opened my eyes a little bit more to other parts of the food industry. And um, my boss, um, he probably should have been when I was so young, like health and safety and stuff. But <laughs> I, he was um, like from probably when I was about sort of about 14, he started showing me how to break down lambs and chickens and pigs. Um, to the point where when I left school, I was breaking down quarters of beef um when I was like 16 I'd be working in the shop and and um, just absolutely loving it I'd finish all weekend I'd be working in the shop Saturday and Sunday just really enjoying it then when I left school the, it just seemed like that's what I was going to do um I'd already decided on that before all of my exams and everything like that and um then to keep the kind of education side of it going I signed up to do a butchery apprenticeship which um was it's quite a it's kind of sort of physical apprenticeship, so there's mm. there's not that much paperwork side of it. Um, so that I passed really really quickly because I was obviously already doing all the butchery side of it. Um, and then I did a business management kind of apprenticeship as well, like based on the meat industry, and um, that took me up to about the age of nineteen. Um, so yeah, you achieved so much. <laughs> yeah, I, I I was just just like really enjoying it I, I was really fortunate that the butcher shop as well that I was working in it was it was quite small by the time like I'd been there a couple of years I was the uh, me and my boss um, John Woolman we were the kind of main butchers in the shop um, and then we had a couple of people who worked with us um, my partner Lucy who I met at school she actually we opened the delicatessen next door and she started working in the deli next door I'm, I'm running the deli for us um and uh, it was just a really good opportunity to be in an, an environment where my boss was um, really keen for me to learn right from the farming up to the butchery and selling and cooking the product, um, which was quite unusual back then. I guess like, butchery went through quite a big spell where um, there wasn't actually that much butchery going on in shops. And I know mm. that's changed a lot recently in this last like five to 10 years. Um, there's a lot more shops are buying in carcasses and it's it's really become quite a cool thing to be a butcher. I think people like um, Nathan Mills at the Butchery Limited, um, there's the, a load of butcher shops across London doing an amazing job. And I think that's kind of brought things back to where it used to be. But so, when I was... Sorry to clarify, um, Matt. So back when you know say 10 years ago what happened then would butchers just literally buy in pre-cut bits of meat and sell them is that not yeah so not many butchers were buying in carcasses they would be buying in um, cases of meat kind of pre-prepared which meant that there wasn't any real aging of beef going on because the beef was coming in fresh in vacuum bags so you couldn't age it Um, and uh, my boss was keen to like buy um, buy cattle and, and animals from like around like surrounding farms and stuff and then teach me how to process them from start to finish and um we started making i guess british charcuterie back then so we was making um cooked hams and pates um pork pies and things like that and um we would make all of our own sausages and bacon and um i just really enjoyed it I, i think i enjoyed 
as much as I absolutely love like cutting up meat and things like that, I just actually <laughs> just enjoyed the business of it. I enjoyed um, the people, I enjoyed the the farming, the infrastructure, the economy of it all, um, and how you make it work. Just just really fascinated me. It just seemed like a really nice, genuine sort of trade to learn. And um, if if you do it really well, it can be really rewarding. Um, there's lots of sort of cowboys in trades like this, obviously, but people who do a good job, they they can do really well and, and they can be really rewarding for themselves and for the farmers that they're buying the meat from. Um, and the consumers as well will get an amazing product. Mm, it, um, it, it is like a real pillar as a community when you're lucky enough to have had a good butcher's where you live, because, you know, I grew up um, not far from you actually in Gloucestershire. And when you have a local butcher who does all of those things and can talk you through all the different cuts of meat, and it does make you excited to cook and you, like, it sounds cliche, but you respect the ingredients so much more, don't you? Because you understand where it's come from and and you're using the bits that you might not think to use because they can recommend something for you rather than just going, yeah, I'll have the same sausages that I have every week or that I can get in the supermarket as well. Yeah, definitely. And and when you're in a butcher, when you actually work in a butcher shop, you you know that that's the case that people are coming in because because you really you really start to feel people are coming in because they wanted to talk to myself and my boss John. That that was like that was probably like seventy five percent of them coming in yeah. was them to come in and chat to you because they yeah. knew that they were going to have like they, we weren't going to intimidate them with um, making them feel like they can't ask stupid questions um, and we was going to like help them get good ideas. We're going to give them good value for money um and uh, they're going to go away with um like confidence that they're going to use that meat to its best and um i think that's where like butcher shops if done right they can be really really um a key part of the community yeah um, for sure so you had that obviously this shop um in oxfordshire where you're from and where did you and lucy go from there so Lucy um, went to go and work for the council. So she she um, got an apprenticeship doing um, HR, so quite different to um, food. Um, and uh, alongside that, we also was doing lots of... Um, uh, we used to do pig roasts um, and things like that, hog roasts like outside of work. So we'd, we were kind of working together on that a little bit. Um, and then I got... Um, a bit randomly, but there was a there was a TV show on BBC Three, um, Young Butcher of the Year. I remember this. Uh, this is, I yeah. remember this show. Um, well, I so I um, I applied to go on that, and um, I I made it through to the TV show, and it was it was a brilliant experience. I, I didn't win it; I came third. Um, but I was by far the youngest person there. Everybody else was like pretty much like late twenties, um, like mid to late twenties, and I was um, I was like eighteen, nineteen at the time. So yeah. I was by far the youngest person. But <laughs> it it was um, it was really good fun. And it, what what actually made me realise though is by talking to more butchers from other parts of the country was um, it just really opened my eyes to like different ways to do butchery um, because I'd been taught by. I've, re- I've been taught a really, really good way to do butchery, and I just assumed that's the way you do butchery. Um, and there's nothing wrong with what we was doing, but it was just quite interesting to see how people were doing things differently in mm-hmm. other shops. Um, because I obviously I'd come straight, I'd been working in this shop from school and just kind of stayed in that shop and not really ventured out of that little area. I'd been to farms and been to like the slaughterhouse and stuff, but not been to many other shops or worked with anybody else. So, um, 
after that, I I kind of had like a bit of a feeling where I, I should probably find some other places to go and work. Um, just to, you know, if I, I I could stay in this in Launton for the rest of my life probably and, and run that butcher shop. But um, I just wanted to actually learn more about butchery. It kind of inspired me to go away and try and find, try and learn more. Um, and then at that same sort of time when the TV show went out, um, Jamie Oliver had just opened, was just opening Barbacoa. Um, the restaurant and the butchery underneath and um, uh, advert came up so I, I just sent a, a CV and I got um, a call straight away from uh, Nathan who was who now is Nathan Mills at the butchery he was the manager at the time of Barbacar Butchery and um, he uh, phoned me back straight away and uh, said like you know they offered me a job and this would have been um, it was about November time and I, I said to him um, I would love absolutely love to come work down in London but I can't um, I can't leave my current job in November um, <laughs> to the guy who's taught me everything I know and I can't just leave him just before Christmas. So mm. I, I I sort of said, I'll start with you, but I can't start until February. So that would have been February um, 2010, I think. Um, I started working there. And um, so I, I've moved to London. Lucy, um, moved, we, we both moved to London and she started working in HR for the London Business School. And I was working at Barbacoa. And uh, at Barbacoa, it was just an eye-opening experience because I was working with people from um, New Zealand, um, Australia, um, uh, Poland, and all over Europe. And it was, it was a real eye-opener to see different ways. Everybody was cutting the meat differently, completely differently to each other. But they were getting they were getting the same end products at the end of it. Um, but they were just doing it in a completely different way to each other. And it was it was okay. Like no one was saying you was right or wrong. Um, that was just the way you was doing it. And um, then the products that I was learning how to make was just growing. Um, and being based in London, obviously you don't really have local farms like in in a village butcher shop you have proper local farms where you can buy your meat whereas in london you don't have anything within a small distance so you're kind of just buying amazing produce from all over the uk and um, that led to us then meeting farmers from all over the uk and uh, working with different meat producers um, and learning more about different breeds and different specs and uh, um so the knowledge, uh, my knowledge of butcher is just growing and growing and growing. Um, and then one of the guys I was working with was called Adam Brodnowski. So he was, at the time, he was working just as a catering butcher for us. Okay. Um, but he had come from, again, he would started working in butchery very young. He'd, he, uh, he grew up on a farm in Poland and he started working in the butchery when he was about sort of 13, 14 as well. And, um, but they, he was from a very different background to me. So he, on their farm, they would raise their own pigs and cattle and they would slaughter it all on the farm and produce Polish charcuterie from scratch with it and then Amazing. they would also they would also do the same for all the neighbours so all the neighbours pigs and cattle so they would they would process all that on the farm from start to finish and obviously you couldn't do that now but um he had again a, a really good understanding, and he'd then trained as a, um, a slaughterman and a full like meat processing um, master. So he he really went down the route of understanding meat processing, and then on his way round to London, 
Um, he'd been working in Sardinia, Sicily, Hungary, Germany with top charcuterie masters. And um, he said everywhere he went, so he goes to he went to Germany and he would learn how to make something there. Then he would go to Sicily and he would make a, a similar product, making the salami as well. But then they would be like, nope, that guy's wrong in Germany because of this. <laughs> and um, he just he just really loved the fact that everybody, every culture was so dedicated to their way of production. And everybody makes, they all make a salami, for example, but they all make it in very different ways so mm. he just wanted to take um the best of what he'd learned from all these different cultures and and make some charcuterie but in barbacoa he was just he was like cutting up steaks for the restaurant so we just started chatting about um starting our own company um and uh you know what that would look like and this would have been about 2012 so we were thinking like okay well whilst working at barbacoa maybe we should set up like a, a street food thing it was 2012, everybody was doing a street food thing. <laughs> um, you know, so it's like, that could be pretty easy and we can cure like loads of different meats. And uh, um, that that conversation started in about the November. And then um, we met an Italian guy called Luca who had set up a company called Pico Salumi in Islington. And um, Adam was just, like, he, he straight away, like he just loved the salamis that Luca was making and um, couldn't believe that he was making it in central London. So he went over to his facility in Islington. Um, he came back to work the next day and said, it's amazing, you've got to go see it. It's a really cool little facility. Like, And then we was like, okay, in three or four years time, we would love to have a site like Luca's and we'll be making like English charcuterie and salami. Um, and then in the January, so only a few months later, we got a call from Luca asking if we would like to buy his business off him. Um, and uh, he, we got really fortunate where he actually kind of financed the sale as well. So he wanted quite a decent deposit, but then we had to pay the rest back to him over a few years. Um, so that kind of made it possible without going to banks. Um, and then we all just maxed out our personal loans and credit cards and um, put a deposit down for a company, which none of us had really ever run a company before. Um, My next question was to ask for some steps if people are going to set up their own business, but I'm not sure if this is the right right thing to advise. Risking um, all on your own personal credit cards, but it seems to have worked out for you. Yeah, well, I think um, that, like, um, if you were to, like, if I was to set up something now, like, no, I know, I don't know as I would do it the same way, but I do think that like naivety, like of just like let's just give it a go, um, kind of attitude that that definitely like helps you set up a business. If it wasn't for that, um, probably nobody would set up their first business. Is that you know that that naiveness? Like, and we was just you know you, when I kind of like the first year we just knew was going to be incredibly hard work. We're going to be working all the hours possible, and but the the sort of adrenaline of the whole thing is going to probably get you through it. Um, then it's the second year when it starts to get really hard and you can start to question like okay how much longer can we keep doing this um but we yeah so there was four of us when we started the company so um lucy was working at the evening standard at the time um and she came to work for us um adam myself and uh, another partner started the company was called matt atkinson um and we all fell into quite our own like, natural roles. So I was looking after sort of any sort of bigger accounts that we was trying to get, and also all of the technical side of the the company. So making sure we was um, we had to get our EC number, making sure we was all compliant with the environmental health, and also getting us our SALSA accreditation, which is like a kind of um, 
uh, as hygiene accreditation for supplying bigger groups. Um, and uh, Adam just focused completely on production because that's what he knew. He, it was all going to be, all the ideas were going to be ultimately coming from his head and how to make all the charcuterie. Um, so me and him would, I would like learn all the all the production off of him um, and also then build up the whole sort of HACCP system around it. And um, then we sort of would go to all the farmers and all the contacts we'd met through Barbacoa to, to supply us with our meat. Um, and then Matt Atkinson, he'd come from a slightly different food background. He was also working at Barbacoa, but he had worked a little bit more in sort of food writing um, and was really interested in like food anthropology. Um, right. and, and he had a very good understanding of the food kind of network in, in London and a much, be- a much better understanding of the scene and what was going on than myself and Adam. We were just like hardworking butchers. Um, so he he sort of was our salesperson to some extent. Was it always the view to sell to restaurants or that was kind of your initial aim as the business? Yeah, I don't think we really, I think it was to sell to restaurants and to do, to do markets. But to be honest, we didn't really sit there and make like a five-year plan. We just kind of <laughs> just did it. And um, uh, that, yeah, so in the first like couple of months, we realized very quickly, okay, we need to get to when there's, there's at the beginning, there was the three of us and Lucy started pretty soon after. So we knew we had to get to quite a decent turnover um, very quickly to pay for people's wages, the mm-hmm. rents, and also help us repay all of these credit cards and loans we've just taken out. <laughs> um, and so we couldn't just like sit back and just let the sales build slowly. So we just um, we just worked really hard. We did farmers markets all over London. Um, we would um, any product that we made, we would. Um, we would just take to the markets because that was like straight away we could get cash for it. Mm. Um, some days we would do like five or six markets in one day. We'd barely have enough equipment to spread out to even do that many stalls. But um, we'd get like our parents to come and give us a hand and do different markets for us as well. Um, it was just like adrenaline keeping us going. And um, the restaurants then just slowly built alongside it. Um, so we obviously we knew a lot of chefs from working at Barbacoa. And a lot of chefs had left Barbacoa to go on and set up really good restaurants mm. as well. So straight away, we sort of started talking to those guys. Um, then that kind of naturally led to a lot of people who had come from 15 as well. We seem to always come across chefs that come through the 15 system. So yeah. they would then obviously see the link to us as well. So they would start buying our product. Um, and the restaurant thing then just like naturally grew because um, the problem with the charcuterie was you couldn't, you couldn't really, you can't make it that quick. Um, mm. And even if with all the experience in the world, like when you go to making charcuterie with completely different equipment, it just might not work. So if you're making uh, if you're making like cheese and bread in, in one building and you move to brand new equipment in another building, it's just it's not like you just follow the recipe and it works again. So well, they're natural started, products; they're living products, aren't they? With these bacteria, and so I kind of get that that it's always yeah. going to be different. It's, making, yeah, it's what it makes is, it beautiful, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. And, and that's how you build up your character and what defines your product from anybody else's is that kind of natural occurrence in your premises. Um, and then when you're, you know, you're developing the product, you, you'll be, you've mastered a 50 kilo batch of salami. So then you go, okay, well, now we're going to make a 100 kilo batch of salami and it just doesn't work. Um, so you've got to figure out why it didn't work. And then, then you make a 150 kilo batch. And again, you have the same problem. So it's, that scaling up is like, it's constantly means you have to adjust everything mm. and figure out what you need to change. Um, particularly with charcuterie because 
as it's not the recipes, the, the recipe sets, you've got the same amount of salt and the same amount of everything going into a batch. But um, it's the, when you go to different volumes per batch, the amount of humidity getting released from that batch is completely different to if you had less meat. So that means your whole program needs to be adjusted to handle the amount of humidity coming out of the meat. Um, so it's quite a, a tricky process. And at the beginning, um, because we didn't really have any cash, and we didn't really, no, no one would give us credit. No suppliers really would give us credit for the meat. So making charcuterie was just a, like a disaster because we would have to like buy the meat of our own money, wait a few months till we could sell it, if we could sell it, if it came out good enough, um, and then, then try and sell it. So we actually started making quite a lot of hot dogs. Oh, right, okay. Um, so the first couple of years, we was kind of like carried off the back of hot dogs got through that, <laughs> that couple of years. Yeah. So we was um, we got quite fortunate where, where Jamie had just set up, Jamie Oliver just set up his diner restaurant. Ah, uh, yes. Um, yeah. and, and he wanted to do, hot dogs was a big thing there. And he um, obviously didn't want to put his name to just off the shelf hot dog. He wanted it to be a... Um, like something with some story behind it and that he could trust wasn't going to be full of additives and really bad for you. Um, so we made a recipe for them and a hot dog. Obviously, Adam being from Poland, like uh, to make a smoked sausage was just like, yeah, no problem. <laughs> We've got this down. Um, so we just um, we just started making hot dogs and that escalated to the point where we was doing them for the Etihad Football Stadium for a couple of seasons. Awesome. Um, so we was with... With one of those little tabletop mincers um, that that you might even have in your house, we was mincing um, some weeks up to sort of over a thousand kilos of meat through it, like three or four times for hot dogs. So you um, started the hot dog revolution in Britain. <laughs> yeah, I love it. Yeah, so we we was yeah, and we we did like we made quite a lot of hot dogs for um, Big Apple hot dogs um, to quite a few restaurants and street food traders and stuff at the time. People doing music festivals, um, to, and we, they were all hand linked and. Mincing through this tiny mincer and we could only fit like about 600 in the oven in one go for smoking so i mean the most we made in one week was about twenty-seven thousand hot dogs oh and um, we had like a, only a tabletop vacuum packer and they had to be vacuum packed in 12s as well so it was it was just just crazy amount of work so you and can't look a hot really... dog in the eye now you're over hot dogs uh, now. i'm over it now i'm, I'm, I'm okay I've, I've made my piece of hot dogs now um <laughs> But we, yeah, so we was just, um, yeah, just working really, really hard. But the good thing about that is it just, it, it gave us some cash flow um, mm. and we was buying some volume of meat from our suppliers, um, which meant then we could actually slowly develop the charcuterie um, and the salami without that immediate pressure of um, having to sell it straight away. Um, so it just, it just meant that we could like, like let the the salami sales and the cured meat sales grow naturally mm. without having to force it, which meant then as the demand for it slowly grew, we could keep adapting and adjusting the process so that the quality wasn't ever um, compromised. And um, that then took us to about, after over just over two years into Cobble Lane, we actually got to a position then when we couldn't make all the hot dogs and we couldn't make all the charcuterie. So that's when we started then dropping back the hot dogs and um, uh, trying to, instead of spending like five days a week making hot dogs and one day a week making charcuterie, <laughs> we started to flip it the opposite way then to the point where, yeah, we we just kind of now, we only make hot dogs every now and then if somebody wants to buy like a whole batch for an event or something like that. I mean, um, you are making me want hot dogs with all of the chat, but um, let's yeah. talk about some of the charcuterie <laughs> that you have, you know, that that was the new side of your business and the one you focused on 
most recently because I'm really keen to talk about some of the amazing products you've got. Can we talk about the Andusia? Because that's probably one of my personal favourites. Um, I was um, reading all of the ingredients that you use in it. I'm quite intrigued about that one. Okay, so the, the great thing about Andusia is it's um, uh, when, we, when we buy in now all of our meat, so we buy in predominantly that skinless, boneless, like joints of, uh, of um, legs and shoulder, um, bellies and loins for, for whatever we're making. Um, and I guess the, um, to go back to why you'd make Andusia, um, you have to kind of look at the whole butchery process. So um, when, when you take like a, a leg of pork, a whole leg of pork, you've got the skin and bone removed. Um, it's, it's a really good piece of meat. There's, um, it's a, it's, people would say it's quite a lean piece. Um, but if you actually like what we have to do for the process of charcuterie production, we have to separate every different type of meat in that leg. So you've got um, on the top of the leg, you've got like a good, maybe a good inch of like hard white back fat. Um, and that's the perfect fat for salami. You've got your top side, your silver side, your knuckles. So they're nice, big, lean muscles as well without much gristle in them. We've got to remove any silver gristles through it. Um, and that's the perfect meat kind of for the salami. Um, and then also on the leg, you've got um, in the sort of area of the groin, you've got a big lump of like, like white like soft fat we called it so the difference between soft fat is if you if you sort of hold the back fat it's quite hard and if you look at the sort of you slice it through it's like it looks like one solid piece of fat whereas the softer fat you can see the kind of like uh, texture in it as you, and you can it's a lot it moves a lot more um mm. and that soft fat is is not good for your salami production um and the same you've got the as well on that leg you've got a hock and you've got a shin um and those two bits as well they're not great for your um, salami production because they've got obviously lots of gristles in it and you can't remove them so then if you put that into your salami you're going to get um uh, lots of, you know, be eating your salami and get a bit of gristle stuck between your teeth and uh, it's just not going to be very nice. Um, and then that, that soft fat, if you um, put that soft fat into your salami, what you find is it won't mince as cleanly as the back fat and that will then cause you a slight emulsification in the meat. Uh-huh. Which then when you fill out your salami, that emulsification will sit around the outside of the meat but inside the casing and it forms like ever so slightly like waxy layer. Right, okay. And it actually stops your salami being able to like breathe through it. So you'll end up with salami with like a dark ring around the outside. And um, oh. there'll be then that, that outside ring won't shrink. So you'll end up with cracks for your salami. So when you, when you make a salami, you really need to know you've got really good back fat, like maybe 25, 30% back fat. Um, and the rest needs to be good lean meat. You don't really want loads of gristle in there. You don't want any um, soft fat. So then what, what we would do is we buy, um, maybe we buy like 800 kilos to 1,000 kilos of pork um, and we'll process it all into different categories. So category one is that lean meat, category two is the back fat, category three is the sort of all the hocks and the shins and category four is all the soft fat. So all the category one or two, they're used up straight away for salami. Um, and then what do you do with all of this, the category three, which is still really good meat and you've got all the category four as well, um, which you can't use for anything so the indie is a great way to use up those products it's kind of like balancing the whole process um if you in in your India, you can use lots of soft fat. We also use lots of um, like back fat as well. You can't just use 100% soft fat, um, and you can use a bit more of the the like hocks off the leg as well because it's minced quite fine, mm-hmm. and you won't pick that up. So it's it's um it it's a product which charcuterie producers have to make because so it's, it's kind of like a low weight. It's like zero waste product, but actually it's a really hero product at the same time. 
Yeah, exactly. Like we, so we, out of all the meat we buy, um, we we don't really have a use for the skin um, because you know if we was making loads and loads of hot dogs and processed like meats like that, then you can use a small amount of skin in that process. But we don't, so we don't really have use for the skin, and we don't really have a use for the bones. Um, but out of the meat we do buy, um, we waste absolutely nothing. Um, mm. Literally, like uh, out of like a thousand kilos of meat, there'll be like only like a bucket of bits and pieces we can't actually use, um, and as well the the risk if you if you try and that if you was to like not make and do you you would then probably end up having to push some of that stuff into your other products so you would actually just be risking lowering the quality and the consistency of your other products mm. um so it's if you balance all of your meat buying and your product lines so that you make the right amount of salamis to the right amount of indias and stuff like that and you balance it correctly um you should be able to just buy in the meat you want and use everything perfectly and produce a consistent product um so by by this way of our butchery we produce a really good consistent indias and really good salamis and they work mm. really well together um if we if we know if we make 800 kilo salami we have to make a 200 kilo batch of India. Um, and then the India has been so popular in lockdown as well. Um, it was the first thing I bought. <laughs> it was honestly the yeah. first, first food delivery I bought was your India because I was like, I need to, ha- I need to get my fix. <laughs> Yeah, so we've, um, I think, because it's, it's quite a tricky product to buy in the in the UK. Mm. Um, and uh, when you buy it from a supermarket, it's, it's very often it's in like a kind of pasteurized format in like a jar. Mm. Um, so to get like a, just a fresh piece is quite tricky to do. Um, and I think with all of the all of the social media content that's been getting produced this last couple of months, we've had lots of people using the Induya for pizzas. Um, we get tagged in pizza and pasta dishes on our Instagram page every single day. <laughs> and it's, it's really good to see. I love it. Um, and uh, the more people use it, it seems to be the more the demand grows because um, more people are talking about it. And um, it is a great product because, again, we work very closely with our with our suppliers. So we buy a lot of our meat from Taste Tradition in Yorkshire. Okay. And we buy a lot of meat from Swelldale Meats as well. Um, and we also use a producer called Dawkins, who are a producer of... Um, they, they handle lots of sow meat, so like retired breeding pigs. Okay. Um, so with our suppliers, basically, if if um, Taste Tradition, he produces lots of Gloucester Old Spot pigs, they're, they're amazing. Um, but if he's got like a load of pigs which have just gained way too much fat, he'll struggle to sell them um, for his normal customers um, without trimming some of that fat off. So again, if we can take all of that fat off his hands, we, we can kind of like... we. We'll take help everybody with the carcass balance. Really, that's kind of what, so. With Swaledale Foods, they produce they have amazing meat. Um, I don't know if you've ever used them before, but they've just re- released like a food box as well. Um, I need to get on that. They, <laughs> yeah, so they they've got a brilliant product, and they supply very similar restaurants to what we supply. So we're always like on the similar menus to them as well. And um, they just sort of were struggling to sell. Or they they were getting a bit of a build up of legs of pork. Um, because there's not that much demand for a leg of pork in a restaurant. Um, people want to do stuff with shoulders, with loins and bellies and stuff like that. Um, so we take legs off of them every week. Um, we take a delivery of legs of pork. And that's, yeah, so we kind of, as much as we don't do whole carcass butchery ourselves, uh, because we just don't have a big enough fridge to take in the animals and we don't have um, uh, a big enough like facility to be handling that many whole pigs, um, we're, we're very much part of the whole the bigger sort of side of um, whole carcass butchery. Mm. Um, whereas we're actually like, we're taking the byproducts from a lot of our suppliers um, and we're making real value added products. We're not just, 
mincing it into sausages, we're making yeah. something which is really special. Stick around for more charcuterie chat from Matt, including some expert tips on making your own and how to shop for the best. Can we talk about some of the other um, things that you use as well? Because you obviously do lots of pork-based products. Um, yep. And you do jerky, you do the Polish dog. Am I saying it right, Cabanos? The really, yep. they were a big hit. We When we bought those, we gobbled those down straight away. They were delicious. And you use things like um, the Mangalitsa. So they're the curly-haired pigs, aren't they? They are, yeah. And British yeah. Wagyu. So yeah, talk to me about all the other animals that you're using and the products that you, you make with those as well. Yeah, so um, we have the Wagyu, that's from um, Yorkshire as well. And um, so the Wagyu we use for uh, salami. And with um, what we found is we, we tried to make it all beef salami. And we didn't want to, uh, quite often a beef salami will contain some pork fat to try and get that kind of texture. Mm. Um, and we just wanted to make one which had no pork fat in it. And we tried to make it of 100% beef. And it just kept coming out a bit too hard and dry. Um so then we started using British Wagyu beef. And the Wagyu beef has got, um, genetically, is very different to regular beef. The, the fat's right. got a really low melting point um, and it's really oily. So when you're cutting up Wagyu beef, whether it's the most marbled stuff from Japan or whether it's um, grass-fed Wagyu beef from the UK, um, it, the fat is just melting all over the table. It's like wow. if, you, if you're cutting it up for in, in the prep room, it, it's like someone's tipped a bottle of olive oil on the table. Um, <laughs> And that, that sort of oily fat. So basically with the Wagyu salami, we take 50% um, Wagyu, Wagyu um, trim and 50% our regular trim. Um, and that then, of beef trim, and that produces like a really good textured all beef salami. Um, and it, it, just, it just worked really well. It, it just had a much better sort of mouth appeal and flavor compared to when it was just 100% just regular beef. Um, and it's, it's a great product to use because um, uh, the guys producing the Wagyu as well, they... They can sell like Wagyu steaks and Wagyu chop, like, you know, all the prime cuts, they can sell really easy, um, mainly steak cuts, and they can get really good value for them. But then there's the rest of the animal, which they kind of have to do something with, um, which they can't really get that much value for. Mm. Everybody has a Wagyu, wants a Wagyu ribeye or a Wagyu sirloin. Um, nobody's really after like uh, Wagyu, like silver side or, you know, parts of the forequarter and stuff like that. Mm. So for us, it, it, it just makes sense. Again, it's part of that sort of carcass balance, um, consuming the whole animal kind of thing. Um, and it, it, again, it makes our salami better. So um, it's brilliant. And they're, they're really cool guys that we get the Wagyu from. Um, we also then have the um, the Brazola, which we use um, mm. just like English grass-fed beef. That's a really popular product. Um, I think with, um, with the Brazola, it, it's generally one of the few things which an Italian person will, will say, yeah, you can make really good Brazola in this country. Oh, really? <laughs> um, because <laughs> you, know, it, you can make... So it's when you... Like people who are sort of... Italian people are diehard, like Italian charcuterie fans. It's really hard to convince them like that British charcuterie can be just as good um but with um with the brazola we've got we've got the the base standard of beef in this country is just so good um yeah, we don't have um, uh, that much mass-produced beef. It's generally all grass-fed in this country um, because we get lots of rain, we get lots of sunshine, we have really nutritious grass. So it doesn't make sense for you to buy feed for your cattle if you can just stick it out on a field and it can mm. eat for free. Um, so we just have really, really good sort of standard of beef. And um, uh, you can see that of our beef um, is a quite dark red colour, um, whereas when you go across the continent, it can be quite like pale and watery looking. Yeah, interesting. Um, 
so the so the beef we've got is brilliant, and then for the brazola we flavour it with um, uh, rosemary, thyme, juniper, bay leaves, um, just to kind of add some more flavour to it. And um, and compared to when you get like brazola imported as well, quite often it can be like over dried and a bit mm. too hard. Whereas um, when we're making it ourselves and we're controlling the whole, whole process, we can um, get it to customers when it's, it's absolute like optimum. So with like a, a copper, for example, we can mature it for at like three to four months. It'll be it'll be ready to eat. But at like five to six months, it would just get better. Um, whereas a brazola, once it's like ready. Um, it doesn't really get much better after that point. It, you know, because it's not got that fat or anything like that. It, if you over dry it, it will just start to lose its flavour. Um, so that's that's always been a really popular product. And um, right from the moment we first started Cobble Lane, that was one of the our sort of biggest sellers. Um, mm. Just because it was as well with the whole cuts. Um, they're much easier to make. Once you start mincing stuff for salamis, there's a whole load of issues. Um, there's a fermentation process. There's all the equipment you need. Um, the drying process, fermentation, fermentation process has to be done really exactly. Whereas with the whole cuts, because you've you've not got that massive surface area from where the meat's been minced, you do you do have much more control over it. It's a much more stable process. It's much easier to get right um, from the beginning. So if you're going to try and make any charcuterie at home, Brazola and pancetta, I would say, are probably the. Well, the yeah, main I was going to ask this because I think people might be getting kind of bored in lockdown and experimenting. But I was going to say, because you obviously are famous for the kind of unusual and less loved cuts in your charcuterie. I was going to say, what cuts are good for charcuterie? But I mean, you've answered it. Go whole cuts like brazola and things like that yeah yeah if, if you if you want to try and make anything at home there's some really good books out there to um, get some recipes from um the moment you start um mincing and processing stuff the the risk just goes up and up and up and um the the amount of control you need just just escalates massively um but with the whole cuts they're much easier to produce and keep control of um so i'd, I'd recommend those if you were to try and make anything um <laughs> or you know if you can order um, some off of us <laughs> Well, this is true. And what, so what is a good indicator when you're shopping for charcuterie? Like what, what makes good charcuterie? What should people be looking for, whether on, on your website or, or in a market or something like that? What, what, what's a good sign? Well, um, so there's, there's quite a, might be quite a long answer, but basically like there's a huge range in, in ways you can make charcuterie. Um, I can use like salami as a, as a really good example for you. Um, so if you were to, um, if you was to make, a, if you wanted to make a really cheap salami, um, they've they've got it down to a T basically, where you can uh, make a really big salami of a huge diameter. So you'll see these salamis which are a good like three or four inches across, or even bigger, and they um uh, they'll be ready from start to finish in about ten days. Um, right. So basically, you can you. You use in, in this um, production process for salami, you have a um, first step is a fermentation process in which uh, you use a lactic acid bacteria to bring down the pH level in the meat. And um, the, whole, the whole idea of making charcuterie is, is a balance between bringing down the pH level and bringing down the water activity levels. And that's kind of how you produce an environment in which bacteria can't develop. So that's how we can age it for so long. And then when it's packed, it has such a long shelf life. Um, so if you was to bring the pH level down um, to say like um, 4.9 to 5, um, normal meat is about 5.5. So if you was to bring it down only a little bit, you're then going to have to mature that product to about a 35 to 40% weight loss. 
and between that, you'll then produce a safe product. Um, if you wanted to make a salami really cheap and quick, um, you could ferment that product. So you lowered the pH level down to about 4.5 to 4.6. So then that product is then actually safe to eat alone just from its fermentation process. So then all of a sudden, the weight loss part of the, the process isn't necessarily there. Um, so then you can then, you've made the product safe to eat in literally 48 hours. So then you're going to mature it just for about another week, just to, so it gains a bit of texture and binds together a little bit better. Um, and then to generate that sort of uh, mold around the outside of your salami, you can buy uh, you can buy the mold in packets and you dilute it in water and that sprays onto your salami. Um, and then in in about sort of 48 hours after that, you would have perfect white mold on your salami. Okay. So you've You've created a product which it looks like it's been like aged for a long time because obviously it's got this mold growth on it. Mm -hmm. And um, you assume that it has because it's a salami. And actually it's been made in less than a couple of weeks. Um, whereas if you was to make a, 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 a salami in a traditional way, um, the same salami might take you like eight to ten weeks to make. And uh, you can kind of tell on, on like a proper, if you look at really good sort of artisanal producers, you'll notice straight away that the, the mold on their products won't be like perfectly white. Um, it'll be anywhere between white and gray kind of looking. It'll be a little bit patchy maybe. Um, and that'll be a sign that it's somebody who's, who's matured it for a long time. And that mold, which is a penicillium mold, has grown organically and naturally over a longer period of time. Right. Um, and, that, and that then, that mold will be specific to that producer because that would be in their chambers and it would be in what's evolved over how many years they've been running their business. Um, and that then creates their unique flavor. It helps develop the texture, the color of the meat and makes your product unique to you. So that, I guess like there is, obviously people, people obviously will buy like cheap salamis and if you're using it for um, like, yeah, sandwiches or something like that, maybe that's what your budget affords. But if it's for like charcuterie for enjoying as charcuterie and just having a plate of um of salami by itself, then um you really want to get like something which is made like the the more slower traditional process. So you just looking for something if you look at our our saucy sounds, you can see they're a little bit like knobbly where the that's a sign that there's been lots of weight loss in there. That's they're about 40% weight loss. Um you can see the mold on them and everything like that is all grown like naturally in our chambers. Um and that they're all indicators that something's been made um correctly really. And uh you'll see that from lots of our different British producers. Every I'd say um pretty much all of the British charcuterie producers, I mean, I can't think of anybody who isn't, are all producing stuff in traditional um, ways. Uh, I don't think anybody's producing anything in this kind of fast fermented process. I guess um, it's with meat in any respect, right, is you pay, you you know, you pay what you get for, uh, you get what you pay for, <laughs> you yeah. get what you pay for in that you need to pay, like, like, the price will reflect the quality of the meat and the sourcing of the meat and the time it's taken to create the product. So if you can afford it, it's worth kind of paying that amount. Yeah, definitely. And um, as well, if you ask, if you were to buy like charcuterie to have at home as well, it's always a bit, particularly with like, if you think of like a sausage sum, if you um, was to buy it pre-sliced, it will cost probably more per hundred grams than if you was to buy it whole. Um, and as well, if you was to buy it in a packet, once you open that packet, you're going to need to consume it within a couple of days, really, because mm -hmm. it, it won't necessarily mean it's going to go off, but it will just start to lower the quality a little bit and it will start to oxidize. Whereas if you buy a whole salami, um, 
you can just keep coming back to it and cutting a little bit off of it every now and then, um, and then just wrapping it up in some greasy paper and leaving it and coming back to it again. And it's, you know, it's, you've got like, it's going to cost you less money and you don't have to eat it like all in one go when you open the packet. I was going to ask you about this. This is a really good tip then. So do you keep your, if you buy your sausage on whole and you wrap it in a greaseproof paper, do you then keep it, do you keep it in the fridge or do you keep it in like a dark cupboard or something? Or what's the best way to store charcuterie when you do buy it? Well, I normally just keep it in the fridge, to be honest, um, just because um, if if you when we've made like our sausage on, um, it doesn't need to be refrigerated when you and you receive it. It is an ambient product, um, but once and once it's in a, when it's in a vacuum pack as well, which is how we have to kind of distribute our stuff, it's going to pretty much stay exactly the same the way it is. Um, if you were to open up that sausage on and just leave it on the side wrapped in gooseberry paper, it would actually like start drying out. It would it would effectively that maturation process would keep on going, mm. and it would just keep getting harder and harder and harder. Um, but if that's how you like your sauce and you want it to be even harder then I guess you might want to do that um but I to be honest I usually just wrap stuff in grease through paper and just put it back in the fridge and then it would just literally stay the same it, it won't really change either way that's kind of how I would store it and and the thing is right if you was to if, if you have got a really cool place then that's great if you was if it if it does heat up um, what happens then it just again it won't go off it just becomes more of a quality where the fats and it would all start to go a bit too oily but I would always I would always like get it out like um, get it to room temperature when I'm going to eat it. Um, it I think the flavours are much better much more balanced and come through a lot more when it's at when charcuterie is at room temperature um, but it doesn't necessarily mean you need to leave out when you cut some slices of charcuterie they're so thin anyway that they generally, like once you've sliced it, it's going to be at room temperature pretty quickly because it's only like a millimetre thick slice. Mm. Um, so you don't need to leave it out for like hours, for example, to get it to room temperature. Perfect, because um, I am hungry. I'm really keen for some charcuterie now. I've been talking to you. Um, I'm conscious we nearly need to wrap up. But so just to, I wanted one to ask you, how do you see the sort of future panning out for artisan businesses like you that have had to kind of adapt during this situation? And then I want your top tips on what we should be buying charcuterie-wise because I need to know the best products to buy. Okay, so um, uh, I would say right now, like the way all the the ourselves at Cobble and Cure and other producers, how we're adapting, we, you know, I think most people just supplied restaurants um, in, in charcuterie. And the reason that is, is because to get into retail is, is quite expensive investment for packaging equipment and stuff like that, which is, is quite a t- tough thing to do. Um, but I think you know, we're definitely going to be staying with the retail as, as it looks at the moment. Um, I think what's been really good about moving to the retail has been um, we've, we've had seven years of supplying restaurants and we don't get that much feedback from the general public. Um, yeah, so we don't really know how many people know who we are. That's yeah, we just sort of supply the chefs and the restaurants and we talk to them um, and that's that's kind of it. Um, and the social media on the side of that never really felt like um, it was a crucial part of our company because we, um, we, you know, the restaurant thing grows organically as chefs move from place to place and kind of networking and stuff like that. So if we wasn't selling to, as we wasn't selling to general public, it didn't really feel like the social media could really connect that much with the public because people would look at the pictures of our stuff, but then unless they lived near a restaurant we supplied, they couldn't actually get it. Um, so I think that's what we've learned is like, like just that, and the amount of people who knew who Cobble and Cured were has been amazing and really overwhelming. And they've been excited that they can now get 
product delivered to their door. And um, we get emails every day, like 10 to 20 email every day, just just saying like, thank you for the product and um, and what they did with it. And we're getting tagged in pictures of people enjoying our meat every day on social media. And um, that's been absolutely lovely for us. Like we, it's been so nice to see. And it's um, uh, through this kind of like dark time that we've been going through it, that it's been so like overwhelming for us like you know we really felt like um cobbled and cured like we we didn't know what was going to happen um we didn't know how we was going to get through this and then the the support we've received um from from the public after our stuff directly um has just been amazing so i think it would be um you know we're not going to just drop that um, that's going to be now a main part of our company that we're going to keep going. Um, and at the moment, we are just trying to figure out how, if if and when all the restaurants open up, um, what we need to do to keep that side of the company going along and keep it growing. Um, without, uh, We don't want to just people to feel like once the restaurant's open, we've, we've dropped that. Um, <laughs> yeah, we, we feel like we owe it now to the public to keep supplying people. Um, you really do. Yeah, we're we, all addicted. <laughs> We've got we've got people who are on their like fifth and sixth order since um, lockdown started. So um, people obviously really wanted this stuff, and um, uh, the amount of people making pizzas at home and pasta dishes and stuff using arandia and pepperoni, um, and just I think people working from home as well, we're like picking away at charcuterie whilst they're um, uh, you know, <laughs> working from their their laptops at home. Is um, you know people are treating themselves, and um, yeah, we don't we we want to give people like something that. Um, is a, a, you know we want to make our product like affordable or we don't yeah we we don't like it's not massively marked up it's not that much more expensive than if you we supplied restaurant stuff we want to give people something which they can buy on a regular basis that's really good quality mm. um and we can tell you exactly where the product came from the full traceability and um you know something which is ultimately they can sort of eat kind of guilt-free and enjoy and uh, um you know, help make their working from home a little bit nicer <laughs> You definitely um, are right. So give me give me two products we should buy now. I'm, I'm on the website now. I'm going to order when I get off the call. <laughs> okay. So the um, you mentioned the cabanos. Um, that yeah. is, um, I think that's been we we used to make like one batch a week of that product, and now we have to make it every single day. So every day oh, really? we make wow. eighty kilos of cabanos, wow. um, and uh, it's kind of like a, a good snack product. It's um, uh, we it's adjusted, we've had to adjust it a little bit due, right during lockdown. So our original one was smoked. Um, but during the whole of lockdown, we've not been smoking the cabanos. We've actually been using smoked paprika. We're making it a little bit more like a chorizo-y mm. flavoured snack. Um, that's nice. just because we're in central London and um, we have to be really wary of our neighbours and stuff like that. So we just didn't really want to be using the smoker at all. Um, and uh, it's a really nice product and it's been really popular. And you can just, like, I love to just grab the cabanos and a jar of really good horseradish sauce and just Ooh. use it like a spoon. Yes, <laughs> um, that is a good insider hack. On your website, you call it the pepper army that went to finishing school, which I love. <laughs> yeah, um, it's, it's, it's just a really, really popular product. And normally we'd just be, we'd be supplying it to pubs and bars and they'd be serving it alongside um, their beers and stuff. Um, but yeah, like people, I guess, are serving it alongside their beers at home. Um, <laughs> and then I guess like, Apart from you know, the charcuterie, if another product, just I would say our fennel salami or our copper, they're, they're two just like really consistent, brilliant products. Um, and you can, you know, you can use the copper, you could use like, a, like as a substitute for like a prosciutto. They're, they're matured for a really long time. They've got amazing flavor, really big depth of flavor. Um, 
and just in, enjoy enjoy it like how you know you don't really need to do too much with it you can mix it in with like a salad or something like that if you'd like um and the fennel salami that's amazing product to eat how it is it's got a really nice sweet flavor mm. um you get all those fennel notes there's a little bit of rosemary a little bit of cloves a little bit of cinnamon in there um but then it also cooks really well so it goes really well on pizzas goes really well into pastas and stuff like that um so yeah, I, yeah. it's hard for me to say i eat so like much charcuterie. Um, <laughs> I, I eat i eat way too much and that's been the worst bit about the fact that we're slicing meat all the time normally we're not slicing meat mm. so um we are all eating so much charcuterie at work right now because it's it's just there sliced all the time <laughs> getting high off your own supply i love it um i would also thoroughly recommend the pancetta i think it's sold out on the website at the moment but if you want to make the ultimate carbonara i can thoroughly recommend your pancetta too because i actually so made good. a carbonara last night that was my I, my dinner i made for lucy and my daughter eva and uh, it went down very well um, and the pancetta is going to be it'll be back on stock in about four days five days time I'll be clicking um, on all right. Well, thank you so much, Matt. That was fascinating to learn about kind of your journey into butcher and charcuterie. And um, and yeah, I'm very excited to go and buy some charcuterie now. So thank you. No, thank you for having me. Thank you very much. If you want to um, look into more about Cobble Lane Cured, you can go to cobblelanecured.com and there are lots of recipes to use all of these products on olivemagazine.com. Thank you very much. So that was the Olive Magazine podcast. If you want to explore more of our back catalogue of over 200 episodes, you'll find us on all the main platforms and on our website, olivemagazine.com, where you'll also find tons of useful recipes and great cooking advice. And why not try a subscription to Olive Magazine and get the very best recipes to help inspire your cooking this summer? Take advantage of our summer sale subscription offer, where you will get three issues for only £5. To redeem this offer, please go to buysubscriptions.com allpod720. That's buysubscriptions.com forward slash olpod720. Terms and conditions apply. Stay safe and we'll see you next week when we have a brand new episode to listen to. Thank you.